Fantastic. Well, friends, my name is Michael. I'm excited you're with us today. Um, I get to continue on in our series. And I love having the youth in here. I was at our youth ministry on Friday night. Where we baptized another four young people who made the first time declaration of their public faith, which is amazing. That would be something to celebrate. Come on. That's great. And after the service today, after we, in a moment, we're actually also going to baptize another one of our young people, uh, which is phenomenal. We're seeing so many of our young people say, hey, I want to make a public declaration for my faith. If baptism is something that excites you or you have questions about it, scan the QR code. We'd love to talk to you more about that. But on that note, friends, we've got to get to baptizing people. So I've only got a short time to preach today. Would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, oh Lord, I thank you so much. We've already celebrated beautiful families in this service. I thank you for the families who have traveled today to celebrate one another. I thank you for the generational discipleship that exists in this congregation. That we uh, have both the old and the young, Father, partnering together and walking as they follow and learn how to be disciples of Jesus. God, only you deserve the glory for this. God, I pray as we sit under your word, I thank you your word never returns void. I thank you that you are faithful. God, more than anything else, whether we're joining online today or in the room, we need to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So more than my voice, turn that down and turn up your voice, Holy God, that we would hear what you might say to us, that we might be transformed by your living word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, less of me, more of you. And everyone said, amen. amen. Friends, one of my favorite shows um, over the last couple of years, probably ever since it started, is a show called Grand Designs. Any other, other shameless Grand Design watchers in the room? Now, some of you who haven't seen, welcome to the gospel of Grand Designs, friends. You should watch this show. It's got no swearing, no naughty scenes, and it's awesome. Just like, the only problem is that you're filled with envy and jealousy as you watch people build houses that you will never be able to afford. If you can afford one of these houses, let's have a chat after the service. There's this moment where Kevin McLeod, the guy on the screen, had an idea, I assume it was his idea, where he started to go and do these small documentaries of people as they built their dream homes. So we'd come along to this couple, usually a couple, sometimes single, sometimes different arrangements, and he would say to them, hey, tell me about your house. And they would sketch the plan, show them the blueprints, and it was great. They would do this 3D modeling thing at the start of the show, which is always my favorite part. And they would then spend the rest of the show following them over the next six Year, six months to a year, sometimes two to three years as they built their home. And it was beautiful that you got to watch in an hour the joys and pains and sufferings of what it means to renovate and choose never have to do it yourself. It's a great show. But there's this great moment at the start of Grand Design that, uh, it, that always shocks me. Kevin always asks the couple the same two questions. Number one, how long do you think this is going to take? And... Yeah, budget. Someone, someone's like, I've been on it. How much it's going to cost, right? Well, how long is it going to take and how much it's going to cost? And every time, it's like got more seasons than Survivor now, but every time people get it wrong. They're like, it's probably going to take three months and the budget's maybe you know, $100,000. And Kevin always goes, I, I, I think you've under-budgeted and uh, you've underestimated your time. They're like, no, 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 Kevin, we'll be fine. And as you know, if you're an addict like myself, you know how the show plays out. The show goes on, the budgets blow out, pandemics happen, crisis comes along, and the construction costs just blow up. And Kevin comes along to the end of the show, and he comes next to the couple and goes, so, beautiful house, I love it. You know, he walks you around it, and he goes, so let me ask you the two big questions. How long did it take, and how much did it cost? And it's always, it took longer than they thought, and it cost usually millions more than they would budget it. And you kind of you have this moment with these two people who are disillusioned, disenchanted, 
disengaged and sometimes they've even disowned their own house and sold it already. They're like, stuff that we can't do this anymore. Right? But now we look at that and we laugh, but actually humans are actually really good at this. When they built the Suez Canal, um, it, it, this amazing feat of modern engineering, they actually under budgeted it by 20 times. It was 20 times over budget. The Sydney Opera House cost 15 times more than their initial budget projections. Some of you are doing renovations right now. If I were to ask you who knows the pain of under budgeting, the hands will go up around the room, right? And the questions that, that Kevin asks these people, how long will it take and how much does it cost? Aren't they actually really good questions? questions for almost every decision we've got to make in life. But you know, the one question, the one place we often don't ask these questions, but we need to, is in our relationships with God. How long is it going to take and how much is it going to cost? Now, this is not a sermon about money. This is not a sermon about financial costings or following Jesus. But it is a sermon about this. That actually, I believe there is a cost to following Christ that many times people don't navigate, don't understand, and are not told. And they can feel sometimes that Christianity is a bait and switch kind of thing. Someone comes along to church, they have some you know, young upstart preacher preach a great passionate message about how good it is to follow Jesus. Everyone's sticking their hands up after the service. And then suddenly the reality of following Jesus comes slamming in on Monday morning. You're like, hang on, this is a lot harder than anyone said it would be. Or maybe you're here for the first time. And you're wondering, what does it look like to follow Jesus? The beauty I love about Jesus, if you're wondering, is that Jesus isn't running an advertising marketing campaign where He's trying to paint a picture of what following Him is like, hoping that you'll sign up and then He's got you bait and switch. Now, Jesus is actually always very clear about what it's going to mean to follow Him. Often it's just because we don't read or listen. Friends, there are some of you here today who have been here for a while. Maybe it's not this church, you've been going to church for a while and you've been following Jesus, but there's been this sense where you are disillusioned. You're disenchanted. You're disengaged. And I wonder if it's because you never actually understood that Jesus never said that following him comes without a cost. Maybe you're here today and the way you describe your faith is, is lukewarm, apathetic. I don't want to let you know today that Jesus, to every one of us, wants to reignite our discipleship today. He wants you to know that following Him is worth it. It comes at a cost, but it's a cost that pales in comparison to what we receive in eternity. Friends, do you know the cost of discipleship? We're in this series about encountering Jesus. And our belief is that God wants every single person through the power of His Holy Spirit to encounter Jesus. When we read the Bible, we see people encounter Jesus. We see the blind can see, the lame can walk, those possessed by the demonic are set free. We see freedom reign. But then we also see this other group of people who also equally encounter Jesus, but nothing changes. See, it's not just enough to encounter God. Some people think, all I need is to encounter Jesus. Now, friends, what actually leads to transformation, what leads to new life, isn't just an encounter. It's how we respond to that encounter. Many people in the Gospels encountered Christ and left Him unchanged. Why? Because the cost was too high. So what are we talking about today? What does it actually mean? Well, Jesus actually welcomes us into what this looks like. In our Encountering Jesus story today, we go to Luke chapter 9. love you to turn there if you've got your Bibles with you today. Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62, we read the following. It's going to be on the screen behind me. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn there as a good practice for us, which would be amazing. Jesus opens up the story in the, sorry, the writer of the Gospel of Luke opens up the story in verse 57. He says this, As they were walking along the road, 
they being Jesus and his disciples, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 58, Jesus replies to him, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And finally, the third encounter in verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Three encounters, three invitations and offers, three moments for transformation, three offers, follow me. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, man, Christianity seems like a heavyweight. Just stay with me for a second. Because whilst we're talking about the cost of following Jesus, I actually believe the life that God calls us to is better than we could ever possibly imagine. So let's just look at these one by one. What is Jesus actually trying to show us in these interactions? Because each interaction highlights to us a barrier as to what it means to follow Jesus. We read in verse 57, this first man comes along. Jesus is just walking down. They believe he's walking through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. And he's at the height of his fame. People are thinking, wow, this guy's got momentum. He's doing some pretty cool stuff. I've, you know, I've been hearing what he's doing. I've heard his teachings. I'd love to come along and get behind this guy. See, he's not only started to generate followers, friends, he started to also generate fans. And one of these fans comes along and they're like, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you will go. Now, he makes a really naive mistake that humans make all the time. He overpromises without knowing where the story ends, right? Now, some of us know where Jesus is heading. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's not heading to Jerusalem to kick Pilate off the seat of power. He's not heading to Jerusalem for a throne. He's heading to Jerusalem to pick up a cross. I'll follow you wherever you will go. You can almost sense the weight of Jesus going, if only you knew what you were promising me right now. Do you know where I'm going? So Jesus responds to this man who caught up in the hypersensationalism of this guy that's got everything going for him seemingly and kind of gets caught in a moment, which sometimes we do, right? In church, we see our hands up at the end of a service because someone preaches passionately enough. We get encouraged or inspired by a podcast or by a self-help documentary or, or something. We're like, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But we haven't actually understood, hey, what is the cost of what it actually means for us to make this promise? I'll follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus turns to this man and he says, foxes have dens. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus trying to say, hey, if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to suffer from insomnia and we're not going to sleep ever. Let's go caffeine it up, baby. Is that what Jesus is trying to talk about? Yes. No, not at all. Is he speaking against houses and owning real estate and investment properties? Is he, is he saying, hey, listen, if you're a Christian, you have to be poor. That's the only way forward. No, I think we'd misunderstand what Jesus is trying to highlight here. See, what this man has come along is he's come along seeing the life of a famous person that he wants to emulate when it looked easy to follow Jesus. He's like, I'm in. And Jesus turns around and goes, do you know that my life is not comfortable? To follow me doesn't mean you follow me into comfort. To follow me actually means that there could be really hard times. There are people who are going to follow me and they're going to experience poverty. And that's not going to mean that I don't love them. And they will stay the course. There will people who follow me and they will experience pain. And, and that doesn't mean I don't love them and they will stay the course. 
The Son of Man did not come to bring, make you comfortable in this world, but to help you to long for the next. For the world you were created for, not a world where we're called to sit and wait and remain. See, sometimes in Christianity, we can be infected by this thing called the prosperity doctrine or prosperity gospel. And mostly we're okay with this. But we're like, oh yeah, I don't actually believe if I give to God, he'll give me a Ferrari. And that's like basic gospel, like you know, heresy that we don't give God money so he gives us nice cars and whatever. But we do let the prosperity gospel bleed into our lives in different ways. Like we start to think that it is Jesus's job to ensure our bank account is always full to ensure the economy is always heading in the direction we want it to go. That there is no suffering, that there is no pain, that there is no trial in our world. And when it does happen, when things get rough, people turn around like, God, what are you doing? And yet always in Scripture, Jesus never said, hey, follow me and riches beyond good belief will be yours, friends. Cars, jobs, it's gonna be sweet and easy, baby. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, hey, if you wanted comfort, I didn't come to make you comfortable. I came to make you uncomfortable for the things of this world, that you might be someone greater, that you might show this world of a greater kingdom than, than what this world could offer you. Friends, and so often when we change comfort, chase comfort, I believe we lose Christ. Let me, let me explain where I saw this play out. Three years ago, our world shut down, right? We were all there. Um, unless you were born in the last three years, in which case you probably don't understand what I'm saying anyway. But there's this, we, three years ago, our world shut down. COVID-19 happened, pandemic. We, everyone jumped online. Some of you are still online with us today. And there was a reality that we couldn't actually see each other. It was, it was uh, some would say illegal, some, you know, just unwise, different, different people had different thoughts about what lockdown was. But regardless of what you thought, we were all in lockdown, hey? And there was this moment where we started to put church online. We were like, okay, well, let's still try to gather together. And we all kind of joined in. It was hard for some. Some loved it. Some, some struggled. But there was a moment where I actually believe what COVID-19 pandemic showed us is it shone light on why we were following Jesus. Because things got uncomfortable. Things were difficult. And so too, like never before, one of the biggest pandemics hit the church. People walked away. I remember chatting with one person who was talking to me about they were struggling with their faith. This was back in 2020. I'm like, hey, how are you going? He's like, oh, I'm just struggling right now. Like, I don't really know where I'm at with God. I'm like, oh, hey, have you been able to join us online? Like, you'd be able to buy, like, you know, engage in community during this time. I know Zoom sucks, but I promise you we will work out how do I mute ourselves eventually. Like, like lean in. And I remember them just saying, yeah, well, you know, I went, I went to go join online, but Netflix won. Sorry. And it broke me. It was like for the first time, people didn't know if we were following Jesus or not in the comfort of our homes. And so people just chose not to. And faiths began to dwindle. And, and we faced one of the most profound crises of our generation. And people stopped following Christ because comfort in Christ became synonymous when actually Jesus never promises that, friends. He doesn't say to us, hey, listen, if you want comfort, come follow me. I've got it together. But how many of us have made following Christ only acceptable as long as there's no pain points? There are friends, there are non-Christians in the room right now who are looking around and they're going, are you telling me that everyone in this room that's a follower of Jesus has suffered? Are you telling me right now that people who follow Jesus Christ walk through just as much hard times as I do? And we would all say unequivocally, yes. You see anyone with silver hair in this room that's been following Jesus for longer than 20 years, they'll say, it's not that God hasn't led me through suffering. It's that he never abandoned me in the middle of it. 
We are not Christians because God leads us into comfort. He comforts our hearts whilst our, our bodies and our realities may be walking through difficult times. Friends, the first obstacle of following Jesus is this. If you're chasing comfort, then friends, I'm not sure if we can be following Christ. The second thing Jesus says in verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the first one kind of makes sense. It's like, hey, listen, some, let me just be clear. I didn't say this. God has nothing against you owning a home. In case you're like, why? So we can't own property? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not against you investing or having money, but he's just saying the point of following Christ isn't so that we have earthly riches. It's more than that. And so he comes to a second man. This one's a little bit harder to understand. This guy goes, yeah, Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but I'm just going to go home and bury my father. Now, if any of you were to say to me, Michael, I can't wait to give my life to God, but I've just got my dad's funeral on tomorrow. Just, you know, is that okay? You would hear me say unequivocally, yes. Like, go grieve. That's a really hard, difficult time. And so we can look at this and go, oh, Jesus, man, you're being a bit rude. Sometimes we kind of paint this picture of Jesus where he's like this nice, cuddly guy. And he's like, you know, Jesus is so nice. Well, he's just so lovely. But then he says stuff and we're like, oh, no, I don't like that. That's not my image of Jesus, but this is who he is. But often what we've actually missed here is what he's saying. See, theologians believe this man wasn't saying my dad's just died. Let me go home and grieve. Theologians believe that if his dad had just died, he wouldn't have been there at all. He would have been at home preparing the funeral. That would have been his role. What he's actually saying is this. Culture expects me to be committed to my dad until he has died. And then I'll accept the inheritance. That part of my life will be done. And then I'll come follow you. Ultimately, what he's saying to Jesus is this. Hey, my dad's not dead yet. So I'll go home and I'll wait for that to happen. And once that happens, then my five-year plan will kind of all be putting together really well. And then I'll be ready to follow you, Jesus. See, Jesus' statement back to him isn't one of lacking compassion. He's not like, hey, don't worry about your dad's death. It's not a big deal. No, Jesus grieves when we grieve. What this man is doing to Christ is he's offering what we all know how to offer so well, an excuse. He's just going, oh, that sounds so good, but I just got, like, I've got another invitation, so I might go do that instead, but I'll come straight after. There's this great story of a neighbor who goes and visits. He needs to mow his lawn, so he goes over around to his neighbor's house, and, uh, and he says to him, hey, mate, can I please borrow your lawnmower? And the neighbor says to him, oh, hey, listen, I would, but, you know, they've just canceled all the flights from New York to Los Angeles, so <laughs> I don't think we can. And he goes, what on earth does the flights from New York to Los Angeles have to do with me borrowing your lawnmower? He says, oh, nothing really. I just don't want you to borrow my lawnmower, so it doesn't matter what excuse I give you. And there's this moment, right, where we, we, we find that humorous, but... So often what this guy's just done in that moment, he's just being honest. That we offer excuses to save face rather than actually become face to face with the reality that actually our answer is, Jesus, I just don't know if I want to follow you. I just, I just don't think that that's what I want to do. And we don't like how that sounds because we don't want to face the reality. It's like, well, you know, I'll follow you, Jesus, when, you know, uh, once I've purchased the house. Then, then I know you've been niggling me on my heart, but once we've got my family set up, then I'll start following you. Oh, I'll follow you just once I get the promotion. 
Hey, Jesus, you've been putting something on my heart for a while now, and I'm going to be obedient to join that small group, to talk to my friends about you, to love the, those who need loving, to, to give generously to the poor. I'll do all of that, but once it fits in with what my priorities are, you kind of like, I've got A, B, C, and then you're going to be D over here, Jesus. That's where you are. And what we do is we fit God into our overly structured lives, and then we wonder why we feel so distant. Because delayed, if you ask a parent, is delayed disobedience still obedience? Any parent to you would say, no, it's not. But still, how often do we do that with God? We sense God saying something to us. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just let me organize some stuff and then I will get to what you have. John Mason says it like this. The person who really wants to find, do something finds a way. The other finds an excuse. And I say this to you today because it's been burning on my heart. Maybe you're here and God's been telling you something. God's been putting something on your life. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And like, I was, I was pretty worried about preaching this because I was hoping that some people might respond to the gospel today. And I'm like, why would anyone respond to the gospel today? This is not light and fluffy. This is not the sermon you're like, Oi, how good did you feel after he told you all that? Yeah, that's so good. Let's go count the cost. But I just sense that there are some people wondering if there is a better life on offer. And it is. It is a better life. There are some people of you today wondering if this is as good as Christianity gets. You're you're ensnared with worry. You're consumed by anxious thoughts about about things yet to do and and how God fits into all of that. And you don't want to surrender it to God because you know better than He does. But I just sense that God might be coming alongside you today and whispering, follow me. Follow me. Don't leave your family. I've got a, two boys and a wife. I believe that my first ministry is to my family. I don't sense that what Jesus is saying here is families don't matter. No, they matter in the kingdom of God. But he's saying, reorder your priorities. I don't come third. Because putting God third, fourth, fifth, or sixth is how the world ended up the way it is in the first place. When God's not our priority, when he isn't the lens through which we see how we live our lives, friends, things end up badly. That's what we see daily. That's what I see in my life daily. And so there's an invitation where Jesus says, you know what? There is a culture that puts expectations on you. See, what this guy was saying is there's a cultural expectation. I go home and I bury my father. There are cultural expectations on you right now. Friends, the economy is difficult right now. And the world around us is saying, this is therefore what you must do. Maybe you're in a moment with your job where it's like, I've got to do X and Y before I can do anything else. And we turn down the voice of God so that we might actually fit into how our culture says that we should be acting rather than saying, God, what does obedience look like right now in this moment? What does obedience look like? The reason why I paint this picture for you, friends, is that we could paint a nice and fluffy picture of following Jesus. But the truth is at some stage we'll come against the reality that those who chase comfort and those who impress culture will no longer be able to follow Jesus where he wants them to go. So the third thing that Jesus says, another guy comes along and Jesus turns to him in verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Once again, it's like, Jesus, hang on. This guy just wants to go say bye. Can't he go say goodbye? Like, can you imagine his wife's waiting at home for him to bring back the milk and eggs and suddenly like, he vanishes and she's like, wow, did the rapture happen? Like, what's going on here? And, and we're like, Jesus, have shown a bit of compassion. And, and it's, we probably misunderstand again. Theologians would say that what Jesus is saying is not neglect your family or walk away. In each one of these moments, 
Jesus isn't trying to tell them to leave parts of their life behind. Jesus is looking into their hearts. And he actually sees the motivation around why they're saying what they're saying. And for this man, he's put a caveat up against following Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'll come follow you, but first, let me go back and talk to my family. How often do we get discouraged from doing great things for God because we go and ask other people, hey, should I do this? Is this the next step? Oh, that seems weird. Don't do that. That seems wild. Walking on water, Peter? Maybe not. Stay in the boat. What this guy's actually doing is he's wanting to return to his past commitments and he looks back to go, hey, should I go forward or should I leave that all behind? And Jesus is saying this, hey, if you're going to follow me, it's not about following me or family. I believe that we need in our world good Christian families that are seeing their families blossom and grow and thrive. But what Jesus is trying to highlight here is he's trying to show the direction this guy actually wants to walk in. He uses it by showing us an image of a plow. As, this guy, as someone's plowing along, there's a really you know, logical way this is happening. Yeah, I'm not a farmer. I've never plowed in my life. So if you are a farmer, I get this wrong, that's fine. But hopefully the analogy sits because it's used by Jesus. Jesus is saying the plow, anyone who puts his hands to the plow and walks along wants to keep the line straight. Why? Because as long as the line is straight, you're able to provide more yield, more fruit, more harvest. To do that, what does someone need to do? They need to fix their eyes on a point on the horizon and keep going. But he says someone who's looking back actually ends up not doing what they aim to do with the plow. They, they draw squiggly lines everywhere that actually ends up ruining the harvest that they were called to plant and reap. What Jesus is highlighting here is, is not forsake your family, but where are you looking? Where is your gaze? Where is your priority? See, Jesus longs to be the thing that holds our gaze. He longs to be the thing where we fix our eyes. Why? Because only in His face do we see someone who is calm in the midst of the storm. Do we see someone who holds fast in the midst of trial? What happened to Peter when he hopped out of the boat and he's walking on the water and the waves? What happened is he was looking at Jesus and the impossible was happening. But the minute that the pressures of the life around him, the wind and the waves came up, what did he do? He looked at them instead of Christ and immediately he sank. And Jesus says the same, I am the one who holds you. I am the one who leads you. When your commitments, when the things you've laid in on your life draw your attention from me, then you start to live a life I haven't called you to live. Friends, my question to you would be this. Where are you fixing your gaze? Who is the goal of your life? Can I tell you, you can buy five houses, you won't be satisfied. We know that, right? I know we all think we have to try it for ourselves, but we know that, right? No matter how big that bank account grows, no matter how successful your job, no matter how good your kids do in school, it doesn't matter. You will never be satisfied because only one thing can satisfy the human heart. His name is Jesus Christ. This is why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, now we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entraps us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the beginner and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before Him, which is you, you were the joy of Jesus Christ. He endured the shame of the cross that he might sit down at the right hand of the throne of God and welcome you into a new life, not weighed down by the trappings of culture, not weighed by the trappings of comfort or the commitments that he says, don't worry about that as much as you worry about following me, friends. See, Jesus isn't trying to tell these guys, hey, you've got to, I want you to come to a life you don't want to enjoy. He said, I want to show you what true joy is. Let go of the things of this world that you might know the things of God. See, what Jesus is actually doing here is a really important. He gets in, into each of their stories and he looks at their heart. Because if he was to come into your life today, can I suggest that he probably wouldn't ask you the same questions? 
he probably wouldn't say the same statements. Jesus always said something different to everyone because he doesn't just carte blanche paint us with the same brush. He looks at our hearts and he says, what's going on for you right now? See, the point of these three stories is not that we sell our homes, neglect our families, and walk away from our commitments. Don't, don't, do not go do those three things at the end of today's sermon. My pastor told me to. I'll get a lot of angry emails. The point of this is Jesus is actually trying to identify what we really worship. John Piper says it like this. It'll be on the screen behind me. In other words, the point of all these tough words as Jesus interacts with different people is not to create laws that all disciples or all missionaries have to keep. Thou shalt give all your money. Thou shalt give up half your money. Thou shalt go without a bed. Thou shalt go without a funeral for your dad. The point is that Jesus knows everyone's idol. Jesus knows perfectly what is competing in your heart with affection for him. He looks every one of us in the face this morning and sees right to our heart. Friends, it might not be comfort for you. It might not be culture. It might not be commitment. We don't talk about idolatry a lot because we think that's something that tribes do in the middle of, you know, forests somewhere that away from us. And I just say, number one, that's like this cultural uh, racism I think is really unhelpful because I think idolatry is rampant in the West. Martin Luther says it like this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That's really your functional savior. What Jesus is trying to highlight to these three individuals is this, you don't actually want to follow me. You want to follow me as long as I maintain what you think a good life looks like. But as soon as that changes, I'll lose you. So I'm going to be clear. Follow me in spite of comfort. Follow me in spite of what culture says. Follow me in spite of all your other commitments. And so often we say no to God. It's not because we don't want to worship. It's because we're already worshiping something else. I just want to ask you today, what might that be for you? Maybe he's calling you today to be a witness in your workplace. And we're like, but what will people think? What will your Savior say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Maybe they's calling you to be generous and give. Yes to the church, but also yes to the poor, to those in need, to any and all in our world. Maybe he's calling you to love radically. Maybe he's calling you to, to, to sell everything, possibly, and move overseas on mission, to move cities, to take up a profession that you've always thought was beyond your reach. Maybe you know what God is calling you to today, but you're scared, you're nervous, and you've got an excuse ready and laden to go, yes, but and I sense God saying, worship me, follow me. Why? Because I believe that the life that God calls us to, it may not be comfortable, but it is good. The life that God has on offer to you, He promises a life of abundance. And there are some of you here today who your life, even though it looks all right from the outside, it's strangling you from the inside. I want to let you know that's not the way God has called you to live. He wants you to know life and life to its fullness. He wants you to know grace. He wants to forgive your past and redeem you into the promise of a great and exciting future. But He's saying this, will you do it all? Will you follow me and trust me more than your priorities, more than your comforts, more than everything else? And friends, if we do that, boy, the life we could live, the life we could live would not only transform our souls, but we would see history transformed by faithful disciples who have counted the cost. Why would we count the cost? Because Christ counted the cost for us. 2,000 years ago, he died a death we should have died after living a life that we could not live. Why did he do these things? Because you were the joy that was set before him. 
He longed to see you redeemed. He loved you. He loved you. And he still does. Come, follow me. The faithful rabbi stands on the shore of your heart today and invites you into a better future. But he doesn't sell you a false image. He tells you exactly what it's going to take. But he looks you in the eye and says, but we could walk on the waves together. Will you count the cost, friends? Will we follow Christ? In a moment, I get to invite a young man named Elias to the platform. He's this young guy. And he's decided to follow Jesus. And he's decided to make a public declaration in front of you. It's kind of a big, scary thing because now you all know. If he's chasing comfort, you can be like, hey, I saw you. I saw you make that commitment. I'm sure make him any more scared than he already is. Sorry, my man. But it's a beautiful moment to see someone get baptized because they're saying boldly, I'm in. I just want to challenge, maybe there's some of us that God's putting out on our hearts today. It's time to follow. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, I just ask right now, what are you saying to us in this moment? How are you speaking? Listen, this is probably the worst sermon to ask if anyone wants to follow Jesus to. I'm just going to trust God right now, though, because I just sense that there's some people in the room that you've heard me say these things and you've been chasing comfort, you've been chasing culture, you've been chasing prior commitments in your past, and you're, yeah, it's burning inside of you. You're like, surely there's more. I also let you know that the Bible tells us that Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and He knocks and He says, will you receive me? Will you follow me? So I want to make that opportunity right now. To follow Jesus means we turn away from our life of idolatry and turn back to Him every day, every day. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I want this. I want to let you know it's not going to be easy. You're not going to do it perfectly. By putting up your hand today, what it means is that you're going to join a committee, not a committee, that's a horrible idea, a congregation and a family of people who were sinners and now saints who stumble their way home, but we're still heading home. Friends, if you want to follow Jesus, I want to ask, maybe you want to do it for the first time. Maybe you want to say, Jesus, I choose to follow you today in spite of everything else. If that's you right now, whether you're online, you can click a button or whether you're in the room. If you're in the room, would you just raise your hand wherever you are right now? If you want to follow Jesus today, if you want to make that declaration, you want to say right now, thank you so much for your bravery. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I was some other people put up their hands. So let's wait a couple of minutes longer. You put up your hand, you can put it back down. That's so good. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, I pray for everyone that's put their hand up. God, these are people who are saying, could this be true? Could it be true? God, I'm so thankful I don't have to prove that. You do. So Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit right now, every person just raise their hand. I pray flood their heart, renew their heart, forgive them, release them, and renew them. We're going to pray a prayer, our whole family together right now, online and in the room. But if you put your hand up, we're praying this prayer with you. And everyone can repeat this after me. It's just to teach us what it means to choose to follow Jesus. Would you say these words after me, everyone together? Dear God, I choose to follow you. 
I don't want to follow the things of this world. Grant me new life, a new future. Cleanse my heart and lead me home. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you so much. Father, when we turn to you, we can ask for forgiveness and we can repent and say, I repent of my sin. I pray that we would do that today and we would continue to chase you in everything we have and all that you are would be made known to us. I thank you, God, for people who made that response today for the first time or hundredth time. In Jesus' name we pray.